Would you join me? Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 should be our next to the last message out of Matthew 9. And really, this is a section, Matthew 8 and 9 together, uh, followed the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and we have been steadily working our way through this paragraph by paragraph. Today, we're going to actually try to cover two of those paragraphs uh, this morning. So if you would, we're going to jump right in. Hopefully, you have your Bible already handy. Matthew chapter 9. Uh, verse 27, uh, reading with me down to verse 30, uh, chapter 9, verse 27, reading down to verse 34 this morning. All right. I'll go ahead and tell you, you'll hear me say several times this morning that our text does not give us certain information. Uh, and there's a lot of them, so we're going to have to guess and maybe fill the gaps uh, by the best we can. But we know this much is true, what we have here. Verse number 27. And as Jesus, so this really is the most important part of the whole sermon, I believe, uh, this and the application when the Holy Spirit draws it all together, but we need to read God's Word. So focus, whatever's going on around, really try to hone in on the Bible here. Verse 27. Crying aloud. Already I'm, I'm reading things that I know I need to point out in a, in a moment. In our first point, we're going to spend some time on each one of those little phrases. It'll be the longest point this morning is the first one. So two blind men following him, crying aloud, like loud. What are they crying? Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Son of David, that's new, that's a new phrase, not being in the book of Matthew yet. They're unique in Christ. But uniquely, this is strange to us, he's moving along, they're crying out, have mercy. But the Bible says when he entered the house. So I don't know how long they're following, but he just keeps on going. Eventually, at some point, the Bible says when he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, so the idea is in the house, he says to them, this is kind of new. He hasn't really been doing this. Do you believe? He asked the two blind men, do you believe that I am able? Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then, based off of that, he touched their eyes. He touched their He hasn't always been doing that. He will not always do that. Sometimes he says things. Sometimes he touches only. Here, we saw last week with the raising of the girl, we went to Mark and Luke, and we learned that there was a, an audible speaking over her, and there was a touching of her. This week, again, he touches, verse 29, then he touched their eyes, saying, and is also key, According to your faith, do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord. He touches their eyes. According to your faith, be it done to you. According to your faith, be it done to you. There's a couple of ways we could take that. 
What happens? And their eyes were opened. Their eye, there's the miracle. Their eyes were opened. Another strange thing happens after that. I'm sure there was more than this, but Matthew, very concise, says, And Jesus sternly warned them. He heals them. They can now see. He sternly warns them. What does he say? See that no one knows about it. See that no one knows about it. Verse 31, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Notice they didn't create his fame. He's already famous. But they're like, because of their words and what the Lord does to them, they are now spreading his fame, going exactly against what he says to them in verse 30. And we're understanding of that. Uh, We would be tempted to do the same. Now, the next paragraph, verse 32. And as they were going away, are you starting to sense a theme? So back to verse 27. As Jesus passed on from there, here comes two blind men. Verse 32, two blind men leave the house. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Got another case. And when... and then. Matthew is very concise here because he's kind of covered this dynamic in Jesus' power and authority in a previous chapter already. But again, verse 33. And when, uh, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. He couldn't speak. Demons cast out. Now he spoke. And we're finished with these reactions of people in response to either that particular miracle or the miracles that have been happening. And then Matthew says, And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Never has anything like this been done in Israel. That's the crowds. But the Pharisees, they said something totally different. He cast out demons by the prince of demons. Yeah, I mean, he does this. But he's only doing this. Yeah, he seems like he's defeating the other team. It's only because he's in cahoots with the coach of the other team. And that coach of the other team is getting the players on the other team to lose the game. That's the only reason he's like, what are you saying? So the, the crowds are marveling. Nothing like this ever been done. And then the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So if you would, making our way back to verse 27, 28, we'll spend a little while there. Would you notice with me three things today? Number one, again, this is where we'll spend the most of our time. A very simple point, Jesus gives sight to the blind. Very, very simple, Jesus gives sight to the blind. I'm looking now, we're in Matthew 9. This is kind of amazing to us uh, that for 16 months we've been preaching in the book of Matthew and we've not had this particular point and all the ways that, that Jesus' power has been expressed and all the miracles that he's been doing. This particular point has not been made yet. Uh, if you've been with us uh, in, through chapter 8 and 9, here's what we've been finding. You'd have to pan out to really see the overview. Matthew has shown us, and he's not always gone exactly chronological. He's gone more thematic. He has done a group of three miracles, and then he pauses and talks about something else. He does another group of three miracles and talks about something else, and then he finishes with these three miracles. But even last week's miracle had a double part to it. There was a woman with a discharge of blood of Jairus' daughter, and now we have these blind men is a set, and then we have this mute man, kind of like the ninth setting of these miracles of Christ. I say that to say this. Have you been noticing, if you've been with us, you should be noticing the variety of people 
and the variety of conditions that Jesus has been dealing with. It occurred to me the other day that we live in a very specialized time period, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thinking how people help us physically, and they're a specialist. And there's some of you would say, Jeff, your list is literally just the, the tip of the iceberg. But I, I wrote down just off the top of the head a few things that we have as far as specialists. We live in a day where we have dermatologists, neurologists, gynecologists, ear, nose, and throat specialists, ophthalmologist, optometrist, dentist, orthodontist, orthopedist, pulmonologist, cardiologist, hand specialist, oncologist, internist, and the list could go on and on. I don't think that the people who are on certain parts of that list would say, yeah, I also, by the way, uh, I, I double down as that. I do dentistry, and then I'm also an optometrist, and I'm an internist and an oncologist. Like, people don't do that. My point is that all of these cases keep coming to Christ, and not one time has Jesus ever said, hey, dude, you know what? Man, I hate that about your leprosy. I don't do leprosy. He just doesn't say that. Man, I, I was going to help your daughter. I really, I was on my way, but she died. I don't do death. Can't help you. Uh, paralysis, not my thing. It, it's almost as though Matthew wants us to understand. Bring them on. It doesn't matter. Our Lord has the power to. He can meet your need. You say, but I'm going through something specific. I'm struggling with something specific. Christ specializes in your need. I know that he does. Today we're looking at two blind men. MacArthur writes the following about ancient times. This is really like ancient times into comparison to here in America this, this morning in the day and age we live. MacArthur writes, so hear it, the fact that Jesus healed more cases of blindness than any other kind of reflects its pervasiveness. Let's get into the story. Will you start doing that with me? Let's kind of think in the light of these blind men. MacArthur's point is it was much more prevalent and pervasive at that time. I don't know fully the reasons, injuries that aren't dealt with, war, venereal disease, birth defects. Apparently a lot of uncleanness and bacteria that is not treated in that day is let go, and that would cause people to lose their eyesight. And that is definitely what we're dealing with here is blindness. You understand? We're not talking about difficulty seeing. We're talking about people who can't. And there was much more of it going on. Like right now, many of you are like me. You're like, I don't personally know someone that is blind, though we know that they are around us and they have special needs. And so MacArthur's point is it was much more prevalent. I cannot tell you definitively that Jesus healed more blind people than anyone else, but it seems to be the most recorded miracle in the New Testament, I think at least six different occasions. Look at verse 27. You got your Bible still. I want to be able to, to refer back to it. As Jesus passed on from there, so he's leaving Jairus' house, two blind men followed him. Notice these two words. Catch it crying aloud. Let's get into the scene. They're crying aloud. You say, Jeff, what's significant about these two words? They mean crying loudly, all right? Crying aloud. The idea here is loudly. Uh, this same word in this original language was actually used, so just get a picture. I'm going to give you two or three things, all right? A woman giving childbirth. Some of you are like, I've been in an area delivery area where multiple women are delivering children. Okay, they're not really that worried about who hears them. They might have been crying out loud. Watch this. 
when Jesus was on the cross, he says seven sayings. We know one of those was louder than the other. Y'all know which one it is? It's when Christ summons the strength just before he gives up the ghost and he tells the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Before that, Christ cries out victoriously. It is finished! You understand? Loudly. Matthew in chapter 20, I'm not going to turn over there. Eventually we may get there. Two other. And some folks think this is the same scene. Matthew's doubling down. He's writing about the same healing twice. No, he's not. But in chapter 20 of Matthew, like chapter two, 9 here, there's a lot of There's two blind men. They're crying out loud. They also call Jesus son of David, and they're also asking for mercy. So some say it's the same thing put in there twice. No, that's down south in Jericho as Christ is headed to Jerusalem. This is up north in Capernaum. But I said that for this reason. It is the same idea. Wouldn't we expect blind men, let's put ourselves in this scene, go in that in your mind. We would expect blind men to cry out louder than other folks would. Why? They don't know how far Christ is from them. Maybe someone's telling them. They don't know, is he turning around and stopping? Doesn't look like he is. He's, they're crying out loud. Okay, so all of these things, they don't know, am I even being heard? So they're crying out loud as we would expect. Look again at verse 27. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud. Notice the two things they say. Have mercy. And then they say, son of David. Those first two words, have mercy. If you're taking notes, here's your first thought this morning. This idea of mercy is, is really... They're not saying, give us our rights. They're not saying, we want justice or we're making demands of you. Remember this, they're just humbly crying out, mercy. What are they wanting? Would you have compassion on us? Son of David, would you pity us? Take pity on us. Here's one of the spots I really, really struggle this morning. I didn't do it. I thought about uh, Thursday just walking out the door of my office and taking five minutes and just launching out and insisting that my eyes would be closed and giving myself a, a route that I was going to go and I had, had a goal. I was going to make my way back to my office and I realized that might not be the safest thing for me to do, right? And so I ended up not doing it. I don't have the ability, and listen this morning, I don't have the time. But I wish we could somehow, and I had the words and could paint word pictures and scenarios to get us to appreciate what's going on. They want mercy. Will you take pity on us? Will you have compassion? Why? I don't know if they're born blind. The text, this is one of the things, a lot the text doesn't tell us. It doesn't say how long they were blind. It doesn't say if they were born blind. It doesn't say if they had their sight and lost it. How old are they? We don't have any of those things. Here's what we know. Let this sink in. They live in utter darkness. They live in perpetual darkness. The things that we take for granted around us, they don't have that. Many of you, you're like, oh, I, I, I know times that you're trying to just do a simple task like mowing the grass. But it hits that certain time of the day and you've cut the grass kind of recently. You can't tell where you, you, where you need to line up your wheels to do something. You may say, I'm, I'm trying to pick between a couple of colors of paint for my bedroom. They don't do this. 
They don't labor through clothing. Does, does my clothing match? Will this go with that? They don't have any of those issues. They live in utter perpetual darkness. There could be a snake on the road nearby. They will have no idea. A dog, if it is not growling, is, but it may be dangerous to them. The hair on the back of its shoulders is standing up. But if it's not growling, they don't even know this. My point I want you to get is a, a risk was always literally a step away. They are dependent on other people to help them just live life. You test yourself. Don't pause to run through deeply on this, but I would invite you. I have my opinion. Out of our five senses, I believe that if someone, if it was demanded of you, you're going to lose one of your five senses. But you get to protect one. And the other four will be open, and you're going to lose one of the other four. I personally think that our vision is valued so highly that it would be the one that would say, don't, don't take my vision. I want to keep. And then after that, you may put, say, my hearing is right there. I did have someone tell me that taste would probably come before their hearing. That's debatable. But I think most of us would say, vision's at the top of the list. Mercy. Would you pity us? Would you help us? Lotus, notice one more thing in verse 27. Who are they crying? First time in, in Matthew is this phrase. Jesus has called himself son of man. These two blind men call him son of David. That's significant. Why? Son of David. That tells me two things about these blind men. They know something about the religion of the Jews. They know the Old Testament prophecies about Israel's coming Messiah. So you have the original Hebrew is Abraham. He has a couple of sons, but it's Isaac's line is the chosen line. He has a couple of sons, but it's Jacob is the chosen line. Watch, Jacob has 12 sons, and out of those 12 sons, the prophecy is that the son called Judah would be the chosen line of the king, the Messiah, the Christ that is going to come. These men know that. But eight, 900 years after Judah lives, a descendant, a specific descendant of Judah, so we're really narrowing it down, of all the descendants of Abraham, it's this family of this man named David, son of Jesse, who's the king. These men are crying out to Jesus, son of David. What are they saying? Why is, what's the significance of this? Son of David. That tells me they know the prophecies about the Messiah of the Jews, the coming king, the anointed one, the Christ. They know those prophecies, and they know the genealogy of Jesus like was put out back at the beginning of Matthew in chapter 1. And so that tells me they've put those two things together, and it, what they're saying by son of David is we know your lineage, we know your genealogy, and we know that it is significant. It is not a coincidence that you are a son of David. What they're saying is, you are the son of David. Why? If you have your Bible up and you're not seeing this on the screen, it was the end of last week's message. It goes back to verse 26. Back at Jairus' house with the raising of the 12-year-old daughter, back to life. The Bible says, and the report of this, this raising from the dead, went through all that district. The report of what Christ did went through all the district. Let me use a couple of illustrations. If I have a shotgun and that shotgun does damage 35 yards away, if it does damage 35 yards away, then you know it does a lot of damage. If there's a light that is bright a thousand miles away, then you know that light is very bright five miles away. 
Okay, If there's a sound you can hear 10 miles away, then you know that sound is even louder 10 feet away. Here's my point. The fame of Christ and this idea that Jesus is the Christ, the coming king, is being spread because of what has happened, even more so because of what happened in raising of the, of the dead. The point being that these blind men are right there near where this is just happening. It's going to go abroad, but right there next to where it was happening, apparently it was spilling out. This man just brought her back from the dead. We know, we laughed when he said he's going to bring her back to life. He called her just sleeping as though he's going to bring her back. We laughed him to scorn. We mocked him, but it really happened. In the power of that, that fuels, and I think this is the thought. We already believed that you were the Christ the son of David. But now that you've done what hasn't been done in 700 years, watch, we believe you can do what has never been done. You say, what's never been done? Till then, no one had ever healed the blind. You say, would they have that right to think such things? Mark your place in this passage. Go with me if you would. Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 35. It'll be the only other scripture, I think, that we're planning on going to. Isaiah chapter 35. Go back there. This is talking about the restoration of Israel and the ransomed people of God and the coming kingdom of the Messiah. These blind men are attaching Jesus to that time period. Notice, again, I'm just pulling just a little bit out of this text. I think they are definitely calling, when they call Jesus the son of David, they are, they are meaning for that to call him. He is the Christ, the anointed one. Uh, the Messiah King that they've been looking for. Look at verse 4 of Isaiah 35. This is a prediction, a prophecy of that time when, when the Christ would come. Say to those who have an anxious heart. Hey, you got an anxious heart? All the bad things that have been happening to the nation of Israel? Isaiah prophesies. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong. Fear not. Why not fear not? Behold, your God. Notice who it is. Your God will come. With vengeance. He will come, I'm sorry, with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Well, what's that going to be like after he comes and saves us? Then, I wonder if these two men knew this. I wonder if they especially, anytime they heard this preached on at the synagogue, if they especially latched onto this promise. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap, not just walk, leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute, not just speak, sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And it keeps on going further. I believe when these men are calling Jesus... Have mercy, son of David. We know who you are. We know the significance of who you are. And we know that you can help us. It's already been prophesied. You have this power. One last thing as we uh, go back to verse 27 here. Verse 27, 28 is, can I point this out? I want to give some real credit to these two blind men. Because they believe. They already have faith in Jesus but here's the thing. There is no way they could have seen any of the miracles that Jesus did. The miracles are happening in Capernaum. The miracles are happening around Galilee. They never saw one single miracle that Christ had done up to this point, and yet they already believed. That is a stark contrast to the enemies of Christ who could regularly see the miracles of the Lord, and yet they don't believe. 
That should be a shame on them and a credit to these two blind men. They believed having not seen. How powerful is that? You know who they remind me of? Can I just tell you who they remind me of? Listen, they believed even without seeing. Just a report is all they have. They remind me of many of you. You today are like me. I'll tell you straight up. I have never seen a miracle in the physical world. I believe every miracle that the Bible describes. I believe. I don't struggle with that. It's not because I'm great. God has given me the ability to take the testimony of the written word of God. And I just believe that God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, perform those things, whether it be Elijah and Elisha in the times of Moses, in the times of the apostles, and now right here with the Lord Jesus Christ. We just believe. Seen it. Would you notice with me verse 28? Kind of been focusing on 27. Now notice verse 28. When it entered the house, the blind men came to him. So again, here I go. Ready? There's a lot the text doesn't tell us. So here's one of my questions. You with me? How far is it from Jairus' house to the house that Jesus is going to minister from? We don't know. Is it a mile? Is it two miles? Is it three miles? We don't know that. Here's what else we don't know. How, at what point from Jairus, is it three, if it's three miles or two or one or more or less? We're talking about a few hundred yards, a few tenths of a mile. I have no idea. But here's also another question. From Jairus' house to the house, at what point along that way did these two men start following? Did they start following way back here? Were they outside of Jairus' house? Probably not. As Christ and Peter and James and John are coming to back and the testimony is starting to get out and now these men hear that, do they then file in behind Christ? And he just, here's the other strange thing, he just keeps on walking as they're crying out. How long did these men walk? I don't know. But I find it strange. Jesus refuses to acknowledge these two men. That's the picture I get. I don't know fully why. I'm going to offer an idea. Could it be that he just refuses to acknowledge the blind men until he gets them in private? Why? Hey, he's been doing some public miracles, but he wants to draw something out of these two men in private. He wants it to be alone. For some reason, he doesn't want all the public eyes on this particular, and he's going to draw a confession out of them. I wouldn't die for every part of the quote out, but I want to have you write it down. William Barclay writes of this idea of these blind men coming into the house, the house privately with the Lord. Barclay writes, what really matters, let's taste this, what really matters is not what a man does in the crowd, but what he does when he is alone with Christ. I wonder if anyone said, Lord, do you hear this? Just keep going. Let's get to the house. Let's have them come in. My question for you this morning is this. Do you ever get alone with Christ? Do you ever get alone with Christ? What is it like when it's you and Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit? Is that a real time? Or is your religion only on like a Sunday morning and you're remembering an event way back when when others were doing something and you just got caught up in that moment of emotion and you think, I know I'm on my way to heaven because one day a lot of people did this or that and I was in among the... Hold on. Even in a crowd, what is most important, can you get along with just you and Christ, with just you 
and God the Father. He calls these men in. Before I move further in verse 28, again, I know I'm doing more of what's called a running commentary this morning, right? We're pulling out a phrase. We're telling a story. Uh, This is just a biographical narrative that we're going through, so it's not like theology. We will make some applications and draw some conclusions at the end this morning. But look again at verse 28. Another question I have is, when he entered the house, then the blind men came to him and he starts questioning them. Whose house? I I referred to this back in the middle of chapter 8 several weeks ago. But I want to come back to it just for a moment. Whose house is this? You say, well, I guess it's Jesus' house. No, remember a man said, Lord, I'll follow follow you wherever you go. Do you remember what Jesus said? Really? That's my word. Jesus says, the foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But he says of himself, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay down his head. That tells me he didn't have a house in Capernaum. He sure didn't have a house at, uh, in the place of the Gadarenes where he was heading. He had a house probably in Nazareth, but he's not ministering from Nazareth. That's not his base. Whose house is your mind already filling in the blank? Who come to your mind? Whose house is this? Some of you right now are saying, well, Jeff, I'm assuming, like was back in chapter 8, Jesus goes into Peter's house, heals his mother-in-law of a fever, And so it must be Peter's house. Others of you are saying, well, he ends up calling this tax collector named Levi Matthew. And Matthew has this big feast. And it apparently can house a lot of other tax collectors and sinners for this feast, this meal that Jesus comes to. Maybe it's Matthew's house. You know what? I I believe you. I go with you guys. You say, which ones? Doesn't matter. I think it's Peter's house or or it's Matthew's house. I think it's one of those two. Here's my point. Would you taste this? Whoever house it is of those two men, the lesson here, what this shows us, listen, to follow Christ like they did. Peter is called by Christ, follow me. He follows him. He leaves everything, but he still has a house. Matthew follows him, but he still has a house and uses it for ministry. Here's my point. To truly follow Christ like we preachers call us to do and like the Lord calls me to do, What that means is I surrender not just me and my sin for your salvation. I am literally, I am trusting, I'm submitting, I'm surrendering everything that I own to be used for you, for your glory, to be used by you, to be used for you. I wonder this question. It's not told us in the text. How many people came through the house in these two years? How many I'm sure it was hundreds of people. All you have to do is go back and look in the middle of chapter 8 and you'll see that they keep bringing many sick people. Many demoniacs are being brought to him. How many? And that makes me ask this question. To you at home and to us here. How often is your house used for ministry? You say, well, I gave the Lord my sin and I took him as my Savior. Are you a disciple? Have you surrendered your life to the Lord, have you surrendered everything you own, your office, your vehicles, all of your possessions, your home? Is it useful for ministry? Look again at verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, so he appear, appears to blow them off or ignore them until they get into the house. Then they come in in the middle of verse twenty-eight, and Jesus said to them, "Do you believe that I am able to do this?" And they said, yes, Lord. 
I find this to be a little bit unique here. If you've been with us, here's what you'll remember. Do y'all remember this? There's a leper. Remember, the leper comes up and says, I know that if you will, he comes to Jesus. He's a leper, unclean. He says, if you will, you can cleanse me. What he's saying is, it isn't a matter of ability, it's a matter of your will. If you would will to do it, you could cleanse me. And Jesus says, I will, and he's cleansed. We also remember there was this centurion. He has so much faith that he says, Jesus, listen, I'm not worried. I don't, don't come to my house. If you'll just say the word right here, if you'll just say the word, my servant who's dying will be healed back at my house. That's a lot of faith. There's a paralytic. The Bible says Jesus saw his faith, and I believe saw their faith. And so I believe what that means is not just the paralytic, but his four friends. They had so much faith, they're literally tearing the roof off that was so crowded around Christ to get this paralytic man to Christ. He sees their, they're expressing faith. Last week, what did we see? A man named Jairus has so much faith that even though his daughter has died, he says, Lord, if you'll come and put your hand on her, she will live. We have a woman who's been discharging blood from her body for 12 years and wasted all her money on doctors. They can't help her, but in her heart, she didn't express it publicly, but in her soul and spirit, she told herself, if I can touch his garment, I will be made whole. I will be healed and cleansed, and sure enough, it happened. Here's my point. So listen, to be healed physically in the New Testament by the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not always require faith. And I know some people think, what? He always demanded faith. Nope, some people are healed even without an expression of faith. Of course, those that were filled with demons, they didn't have faith. And sometimes the faith was from other people. But sometimes the recipient and even those other people around, Jesus didn't always require. Here, Jesus calls these two blind men and he demands that faith become a prerequisite of their healing. And I find a unique phrase. I'm going to offer what I think most would say this means, and then I'm going to just lightly throw out a possibility of what it may mean. Look at again, verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe? Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according, so he demands faith, according to your faith, be it done to you. Do you believe? Yes, Lord. Then according to your faith, be it done to you. Can I say, watch this. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know for sure. Does this, do you believe? Yes, Lord. Okay. Does it simply mean, all right, since you believe in me, then I'm going to do this. Is that all it means? That probably, that's the predominant view. Again, do you believe? Yes, Lord. Okay, since you believe and you've confessed it, I'm going to heal you. Or could it be, I'm just throwing this out, like a small percentage chance here. Could this mean, do you believe that, I can do, that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord. Does that mean that, all right, we're getting ready to find out if you really believe? Because it will be done to you According to your faith. Be it to you according to your faith. You say you believe, it's going to be done to you according to you. If you're just saying you believe but you don't really, then you're not going to be healed. Now you say, if that is the case, we know these men had true faith. They really did believe. Obviously they did. 
And it may be as simple as, you know what, based on your profession, I'm going to heal you. Or, all right, it's going to be to you according to your faith. And notice what Jesus does. He touches these two blind men. Sometimes Jesus touches those he heals. Often he doesn't. I can't guarantee this, but I think most, if not all, of the times that Jesus, most, if not all, I didn't look it up, Jesus touches the blind people that he heals. Why? Well, we know that a blind person relies especially upon two of their senses. They can't see, so they really rely on their hearing. They're really in tune with sound. That's really important. And touch. Now think about this, and I'm not going to develop. I'm going to throw it out for you to develop in some time and just contemplate. If I was that blind person, and I've come to the Lord, and he's pulled me aside in a house, and he's asked me if I believe, and I say that I believe, I've confessed that, and he says, then according to your faith, be it done to you. And he reaches out. Not a lot of people touch you, and they certainly don't touch your eyes. People wouldn't do that. And then hear this person whose hands, the hands of the person who literally made the universe, the hands of the person who sustains and holds in place the universe, all of a sudden he reaches out and touches these blind men. And you know what happens? France, R.T. France writes, when Jesus touches the eyes of blind people, they would find special significance in this physical contact with a healer they could not yet see. And so he touches their eyes, and then what happens? Again, later this afternoon, you need to just close your eyes tightly, put yourself in their shoes, pretend that you have no ability to see. You feel a hand on your eyes themselves. You hear his words, and then you open your eyes, and the first thing you see is the face of God in the form of a Jewish man. All of a sudden, so this is... And then there he is. What a moment. And then some strange words come out of his mouth. Look again, if you would, at verse 30. Last thought here before we move to our second point. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Verse 31 says what they actually did, but they went away and spread his fame through all that district. Notice verse 31 again. Their eyes were opened, and then Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. The note will come up in a little bit, but I want to begin the thought with you this morning. You ready? This warning from the Lord in verse number 30 is a lot stronger than we think it is. Okay, he told them not to say anybody. Listen to me. Jesus doesn't want this out. Not yet. He doesn't want this being spoken. Now, my practical side kicks in, and I feel like saying, but Lord, everybody's going to realize there's a crowd of people outside. They know those are two blind men that went outside, and when two men come outside, that two blind men go in, and when two blind men who have their vision come out, then word's going to start spreading. But his message to them is very stern. He sternly warned them. It's the idea of, listen, hey, you see that no one knows about this. You understand? You don't tell anyone. And perhaps they agreed, but they didn't keep what they said. So here's one of my questions. Why so stern? Why? I, I, again, I'm, I'm not going to have 100% the answer. I'm going to offer one. I can't be 100% dogmatic because it's not in the text. Lord, why are you so stern? Why is it so important that you don't want this out yet? Isn't it a good thing? Hey, look what you did. 
Lord, it's natural. Lord, it's going to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this a good thing? Can I propose to you that perhaps the reason Jesus, you ready? Jesus doesn't want this known because, so listen, sick people are always looking for a healer. Sick people are always looking for a cure. In their case, they're looking for a healer. Furthermore, can I say it this way? Not only are the sick looking for a healer, but the nation of Israel is always looking for their promised, long-awaited, prophesied messianic king. They're always looking. But again, I back up and I, I argue back with myself. But Jeff, that's fine. It's good that people who are sick are looking for a healer because Jesus is a healer. And it's good that the nation of Israel is looking for their Messiah king because it just so happens Jesus is the Messiah king. So I still don't understand what's the problem here. Why is this a big deal? Why is he saying to them, don't let anyone know about it? I think this is the problem. Yes, let's make an admission. Yes, Jesus is a healer. And yes, Jesus is Israel's Messiah king. Okay, He is that. Listen. Here's the problem. He is much more than that. Yes, he's a healer. And people were probably starting to look at him as a healer predominantly, but he's more than a healer. You say, right, he's the, he's the king, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah of the nation of Israel. He is that, but listen to me, he is much more than that. Christ is, Jesus is much more than that. Can I offer that his primary they didn't know it at the time. We now know that the New Testament says Jesus is coming again. So we now know, unlike them at that time, Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, the King of Israel, is more than the King of Israel, more than a healer, but he's going to come twice. In fact, even the second coming has two different parts to it. And then after that, we will get into the millennial kingdom. And after that, we'll get into eternity. They don't understand this at the time. They're constantly looking for their king, but he's more than that. If you're taking notes, write this down. His primary purpose, this I believe is why he's saying, see that no one knows it. His primary purpose in his first coming was not just to be a healer. It is not just to present himself as the Jewish Messiah, though he does that in veiled form. Even when he's accused of this at his trial, he still doesn't just declare it crystal clear. Why? Because his primary purpose when he came to earth the first time was not just as a healer and not just as a king. It was literally, he came to die on a cross. Why is he going to die on a cross? You've heard it over and over, but don't just, don't just blow it off. He came primarily to die on a cross to pay the penalty for all the sins of the whole world so that we can go to heaven. That's his number one main mission. Yes, he's helping people. Yes, he is the Christ, and he's exposing that and showing signs of that, enough that we can absolutely know he is the one. He is the son of David. But the main thing he's about is dying on a cross. Now, I'll promise you this. Had the Jews known 100% that Jesus was the Christ, they would never have had him crucified. They would have died for their Messiah before they would have let him die on a cross. I used this a few weeks ago. D.A. Carson writes the following. Listen, people who disobeyed Jesus' injunctions to silence only made his mission more difficult. Perhaps that's why. I know you're zealous, but I, I need to keep it this way. We have prophesied that I will be crucified at the hands of the Romans and put there by my own people who despise me. And that won't happen if everybody clearly knows who I am. He must die for our sins.
before he can be our king and our Lord. Number two this morning, more brief. Number two, we find in the last paragraph the responses of Jesus healing a mute. The responses of Jesus healing a mute. So again, notice verse 32 as you write that. Verse 32 says, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed demon man who was mute was brought to him. Again, I've already alluded to that when we read it. Back at verse 27, as Jesus passed on from Jairus' house, here comes two blind men. Are you starting to get the picture that Christ is just constantly ministering? And that blows my mind. I don't think we appreciate. And I, I, I think that chapter 9 has been like one amazing day in the life, just a snapshot in the life of the Lord Jesus. Because this man, there's this feast. He ends up having this debate with the Pharisees. He has another debate with John the Baptist's disciples. All of a sudden, a man comes. He's the ruler of the synagogue. Will you help my daughter? She's about to die. She ends up dying along the way to go do a miracle. He ends up performing another miracle on a woman who has a discharge of blood. He makes it to the house finally, raises this girl from the dead, goes back to the house. Two blind men come. He ends up healing them. They leave. No sooner are they gone. Here comes a demon-possessed man. Needs some help. This is the life of Christ. Look at verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. I'm going to offer two ways of looking at this. They're different. They're subtle. You ready? Is verse 32 talking about a mute man who cannot speak? Watch. Watch here. There's a mute man. And later on he gets demon-possessed. Is that what's happening? If that's what happened, then what we have here is two miracles for the price of one because Christ heals a mute man and he casts out a demon. But I don't think that's what we're looking at. You say, what's the other option? I think we have a man that could speak who ends up getting possessed by a demon and because of the demonic possession, he becomes a mute. You say, Jeff, where are you getting that from in the text? Look at verse 32 again. Watch the order. As they were going away, the two blind men, behold, a demon-oppressed man. His primary thing is he's a demon-oppressed man who was mute, was brought to him. Watch verse 33. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. When, when did he speak? When the demon is cast out. So if you're taking a note, I want to propose to you, since Matthew seems to be describing an exorcism, Christ is casting this demon. We already know. I'm not going to re-preach what we talked about several weeks ago when Christ cast the demons out of these two demoniacs over by the Sea of Galilee. Christ just has the authority to do this. I'm not going to belabor that point. You would need to go back and listen to that message. But what I think is happening here is Matthew is describing an, an exorcism much more than a healing, as it were. And so what's taking place here is when he cast this demon out, it was the demon that had been causing the man to be mute. So that tells me this. If you're taking notes, we're reminded, watch, demons are real. Demons cause effects. When demons enter an unsaved person that can't come into a Christian's body, but when demons, a demon comes into a person's life, they're going to try their best and usually do dominate. Also, you say, what are those effects? They're real. They cause effects. They want to dominate. And one of the effects that they have, and it reveals, they usually try to harm the host's body. I'm not going to re-preach again the sermon from before, 
But we notice in the New Testament, when a person is possessed by demons, a normal thing that they do is they start taking off clothes to some degree. They want to cut themselves. They want to burn themselves. They may try to drown themselves. The demons are going to use their body, either verbally and often physically, to harm other people. Here's what that tells me. They want to harm the host in every way possible. They want to cause a division. They want to ruin their relationships. This is what demonic hosts do. They ruin relationships with other normal people, and they try to drive them into these communities in which it's only other demon-possessed people. And one of the things that now we know, they can cause a person to literally not speak. But right, it's not in your notes, but the thought occurs to me, demons dominate their host, but Jesus dominates demons. He dominates demons. Christ recognizes the situation, casts the demon out of this, the single demon, and the man began to speak, and I'm sure he was ready to speak. You say, Jeff, what's the meaning of this point? Your point here says responses to Jesus' healing a mute. Uh, I want to propose to you this morning that Matthew's tone here is to throw this out. He doesn't really sink his teeth into the miracle itself. It seems to be more about the reaction. So go, if you would, to the middle of verse 33. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. If you're taking notes, I think in this section, one of the things we see is how differently different people can respond to the exact same things. I've seen this over and over. I've seen people be in a service, whether I'm sitting in the audience in a church or whether I'm preaching in a church, you'll see it over and over. Some people are bored to tears and then there's other person. They are so locked in on everything. that They're all having the same experience, two total different takes. These people all have the same evidence put before them, two totally different conclusions. The crowds are marveled by Christ. They are literally awestruck. They can't believe no one's ever done. Yes, there were some grander scale things done back in the book of Exodus down in Egypt. But one, those didn't happen here in Israel. Nothing is ever. But we're seeing this every day, it seems like. We're looking at a miracle unexplainable. This is amazing. And then there's the Pharisees. One group is totally marveling, and then the Pharisees are just hating Christ. You ever notice this? And we see it in our country right now a lot. And I've alluded to it recently. Have you ever noticed that there can be a person, it doesn't matter what they do, another group of people is going to find the negative and they're going to put the negative. I mean, it doesn't matter what they do. We have a phrase, they could walk on water and it still wouldn't do enough for you. Listen, Jesus did walk on water and these people still said, ah, he only does that by the power of demons or by the power of the prince of demons. One thing I've learned about these Pharisees in the New Testament, and I didn't put it in your notes. If you want to write over to the side, Acts chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Peter and John, after Jesus has been resurrected, he's gone ascended back to heaven. But filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus, Peter and John heal a lame man that had not walked a day in his life, and he's 40-some years old. And the crowds marvel at that, but the Jewish leaders pull in Peter and John, they're in trouble. And you can tell in verses 14 to 16 the idea. The leadership of Israel would deny the miracle. They want to deny it, but they say among themselves, hey, y'all go out of here, we need to decide what we're going to do with you. But, and here's what they say. 
seeing that the man is standing there with them and the miracle's been done and we can't deny it, what are we going to do with these two guys? Listen, the first option with Christ's miracles is to deny they exist. That's not what they do here. If you'll look with me at verse 34, the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. If I were there and thinking in my right mind, had a chance to prepare in advance, I might would say this to them. Okay, you just said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Can I just take your first four words? Though? You are on the record. You do acknowledge he casts out demons. Well, he does it by the power. So, but you're acknowledging he does cast out. Well, yeah, if you're going to take it that way. Okay, just want to know you're on the record. You're admitting he casts out demons. They're constantly spinning it. And when they can't deny it, what's the strategy? Explain it away. He only does it because he's in a league with Satan. My ESV study Bible note had the following. And it offers why they should have known better. ESV study Bible note writes the following. The truthfulness, listen, the truthfulness of Jesus' teachings. Do you understand? This is a clue. Oh, whoa, whoa. The truthfulness of Jesus' teaching. The moral excellence of his character and his ministry of doing good should have convinced them otherwise. Shame on you. You're blaspheming. You're taking what Jesus did in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're ascribing it to Satan. This is going to come up again later in the book of Matthew. And Christ will call them out on it. And we will go into that at that time. Just not right now. Can I share one thought? One idea before we finish with our third point this morning. And it's this. Some of you are like me. Um, we're not what we should be for Christ. But I can say this in all sincerity. And some of you say, Jeff, I could say that in sincerity. Hang with me. Ready? My relationship with the Lord is the greatest thing in my life. Like, it is the greatest thing. It isn't what it should be. But because of Him, it's the greatest thing in my life. But do you realize, and you know this to be true, there are other people who look at our relationship. Many of you are like, it's the greatest thing in my life. Do you know that there are people, here's what they say of us. Your religion is just a crutch. You weak-minded people, you're so weak, you need to have hope of a better life in the future. You need to have something in your mind that there's a grander plan, that there's some powerful person out there. And so you've invented this whole religious. There's, there's all these thousands of religions. Yours is just another one. And yet here we're saying, no, you don't understand. This is the greatest thing in my life. It's real. I would also add to that the following. I look at nature, all its various parts. You know what I conclude? There's a God. I look at providence. You say providence. Well, I've heard that word. What does that mean? Providence means that we don't just have nature around us, but we realize, wait a minute, there's rain. We're the exact distance from the sun that we need to be. Our planet has water. It just so happens this plant life emits the very stuff we have to breathe in and the stuff that we breathe out. They love it. Well, we got really lucky there. No, I, and food, and the plants grow, and it rains, and the sunshine. Again, vegetation grows. The animals eat the vegetation. We eat the plants and the vegetation and the animals. I'm a carnivore. We eat all of it. Just, I look at that, and I conclude there's a God. I look at nature, there's a God. I look at providence, there's a God. I look at the history of mankind and what has happened. I conclude there's a God. Somebody else. 
all of those things. Nature. Yeah, what, what do you see when you look at nature? What do you see when you see that it, we're just perfectly arrives and we have all of these good things come to us? And what do you see when you look at the history of mankind? Oh, chance random processes. Seriously? I see evidence for God. Yeah, that's because you're weak-minded. I see the culmination of chance random processes. And so we have the same evidence. Totally different conclusions. This group, the crowds marveled. The Pharisees said, it's only done in the power of Satan. Here's my problem, and then with the third point. Can I just share this? I'm not trying to be argumentative or smart aleck, and I'm going to say this because perhaps right now, maybe not, but maybe you're going to talk to someone who is, considers themselves to not believe in God, right? Oh, what you see, evidence of God, I see chance, random processes. And they, watch, they say in their mind, I don't believe in God. And as a result, this is very, very bad, Romans 1, they don't thank God. They don't thank God for any of their blessings. Why? Because they don't believe in God. I have a problem, though, because I find most of them are very hypocritical. And I don't, I'm not trying to be argumentative. I'm just stating something. And I would tell a person who ever watches this to consider themselves. I, I find a major hypocrisy. I'm not saying all of them, but I'm saying most people who say, I don't believe in God, the hypocrisy is that when tragedy strikes... Especially, I mean, tragedy, very close to them, they often inwardly, or even with their words, or words on a keypad, they blame God. Now, hold on. And they don't, they're not going to say that they're necessarily blaming God. They're going to use this as evidence that there is no God. Guys, I find that frustrating. I, I want to tell that person, again, not argumentatively, I just intellectually, like, hold on. You don't get it both ways. You can't have it both ways. Let me read some thoughts for time's sake. You can't have it both ways. You can't just bring up the possibility of God. I'm going to bring it up now because there's this tragedy that is struck. And they're really emotional and they're really hurt and they're really confused. So now they want to bring up God. Why? So they can accuse the idea of Him. I want to say, whoa, whoa, you, you can't do that. Remember, you don't believe in God. But that's what they often do. Let me read a thought. If you refuse to see blessings as evidence of God, then don't use the results of sin as evidence that He doesn't exist. In other words, if you're not going to credit Him with the good, then don't just blame Him for the bad. If you do that, if a person does that, I'm going to make a proposal. That, and it's inward. Again, I don't believe in God. Never thank Him for anything. Tragedy strikes, someone they love or them personally. And now all of a sudden, the mind, I'm, I'm going to say this. If your mind, even for a second, runs to this thought, see, there's no God. That is actually your mind subconsciously admitting to you that you do know that he exists. You know he exists. And all I would say to that is be honest with yourself. Because what you're really saying is, I know he exists. But I don't like how he's running the universe. Okay. Then just say that. I know he exists. I don't like how you're running things. Okay. But don't fool yourself that you don't believe he exists. Or, I know he exists. But I'm not going to surrender my life. I know what he wants. He wants my life. It's my one, And I'm not giving it to him. Okay. Admit that. 
But don't try to explain him away. You know he exists. And when tragedy strikes and your mind runs to God all of a sudden, now I want to talk about God. And hey, see, this is it. That's your mind saying, see, deep down, we know he exists. Be honest. Last of all this morning, I want us to very quickly notice some spiritual lessons and applications as we round out today's message. Can we begin with, uh, in all of these, we had to cut some thoughts, and I'll hit just a few of the obvious things. What happens here with the blind men is real, and it was actual. This is reality, uh, a real occurrence, but is also a picture of something greater, something worse. If you're taking notes, write down the following. All people are born, all people are born spiritually blind. Far worse than being physically blind is how all of us are born. We're born spiritually blind. What does that mean? We're born ignorant of God's truth. We can't discern it. We can't really see it. You say, well, I I can read the Bible. Guys, you can read the Bible and you can learn a bunch of facts. But none of us are born with spiritual insight, spiritual vision. We're spiritually blind. We can't see the truths of God. In fact, I'll go further than that. All people are born not only spiritually blind, but we're born unable to change our condition. We can't just say, now, you know what? I'm really going to read the Bible this time, and I'm going to keep reading it until it makes sense, until I understand what it says. Can I tell you this? You cannot make yourself see spiritually. You don't have that ability. Spiritual perception and understanding the truths of God can only be perceived as God opens your spiritual eyes. You say, okay, everybody's born spiritually blind. Is that significant? Absolutely. Again, if you're taking notes, I'm moving ahead quickly. We'll probably leave the other note up there for a few moments. But I'm going to go ahead and begin on the second thought. Here's why that's important. Spiritual blindness keeps us from seeing certain things. I'm going to give you four. It's much more. But these may be the four key things. Our spiritual blindness is how we're born. Those men were blind. They couldn't see. Spiritual blindness. Here's what happened. We can't see ourselves as we really are. You understand? We can't see ourselves. We can't see our sin. This is why most people go through, through, the, through life thinking, I'm fine. I'm not as bad as other people. I'm okay. I'm headed to a good place. Why? Because we don't perceive. We don't see ourselves as we really are. Full of sin and dying and condemned. Number two, what do we not see? We don't see God as he really is. We don't realize the holiness of God and the justness of God. And we think God's going to be okay with my sin. We don't see our sin as as bad as it is. We don't see God as holy or as just and righteous and the righteous judge that must punish our sin. We don't see that. Third thing, we don't see the danger that is ahead. We don't see spiritual danger, eternal danger. We may say, yeah, I know it's out there someday, but it's not right now. It's not urgent. When we can't see spiritually, we don't realize how urgent it is to get things right with Lord. And as big as any of those others is, here's what we don't see. The remedy of God for sin in Christ. We can't see it. How can one man dying on a, a tree 2,000 years ago help me? Spiritually blindness. Spiritual blindness keeps us from understanding that. And right about now, someone who's thinking... You may say, okay, time out, Jeff, quick question. You just said a while ago, we're born this way, and we can't do anything about it. So what good does that do? If someone says, they're watching right now, all right, Jeff, I've been trying to read this, I've been trying to watch every few weeks here. Someone's told me I need to 
to listen or watch, and it's just not making any sense. If you are in spiritual blindness, can I advise you what I think you should do? Exactly what these two blind men did. So what's that? Do this. Beg God. I'm telling you, this is what I'm, I'm, my advice. Beg God. God, would you please open my eyes spiritually to perceive what I'm really like and what you're really like and the danger of hell that is in my path and the remedy of sin in Christ. Would you open? I'm not getting it. Like, I invite you to do it right now. Like, right now. Have that conversation. God, this, none of this is just making sense to me. Well, ask him. Beg him. Please help me. A second quick spiritual lesson here this morning, and I'm not going to touch on it long. If you watched last week, do you, don't look back at last week's notes, okay? Don't look back. Can you from mem- memory remember three things that Jairus and the woman with the discharge of blood, I gave three things that they, don't look back at your notes, in your mind, they are three things that they had that God, when he finds these in people, God especially blesses those people the most. Do you remember what they are? Because if you can remember what they are, I'm going to propose to you, these two blind men have those exact same three things. So what are they? It's not in your notes. You can just go to last week. Here they are. These are the people God blesses the most. In fact, I'm going to go further. I'm going to make a statement. Every person who qualifies for these three things, I'm going to propose to you, always receives mercy from God. Always. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. What are these three things again? They were desperate. They let their desperation drive them to Christ. Jairus had a daughter that had died. It drove him to Christ. This woman had an issue of blood, and it drove her to Christ, and nothing would stop them. These two blind men start following the Lord, and they're crying out. And I'm sure people are embarrassed for them. They don't care what other people are thinking. They're crying out for the Lord. Second thing, what do they have? Not only desperation that drives them to Christ, they have genuine humility. These men are crying out not for their rights, not what give us what you owe us, give me what I know. It's mercy. They're humbling themselves the best they can. Would you please just, well, you don't have to, son of David. Would you please give us mercy? Jairus came and kneeled before the Lord. This woman wouldn't even come to his face. She just reaches from behind, touches his garment. They are coming humbly. These are the people who receive mercy. And then, oh, by the way, you remember the third thing. They have faith. Jairus says, if you'll just touch my daughter, she'll live. This woman knows if I just touch his garment, I will be healed. And here are these two blind men. Do you believe? Do you believe I'm able? Yes, Lord. And they were healed. Another quick thought. So we've had two. Spiritual blindness. We all born that way. It matters. It's important. It's devastating. And then we had that idea of what kind of person receives. And if you need, you say, I just need God's mercy. Go over those three things and meet those qualifications. Humble yourself, beg God, and believe God's promises. This third thought is very, very brief. And you'd say, Jeff, it's kind of obvious. Don't really need to say it, but I do. Everybody listening? I'm talking to me and to you. Take time 
take time to appreciate beautiful things. Can we do that this week? We got to take more time to. Do you know that God gave you? Say, I can see physically. That's a gift. You say, Jeff, actually, if I would start looking, there are some beautiful things in my life. Take time. Appreciate those. Let your mind go for just a few seconds. What are your favorite things to look at? I wrote down a few of mine. Is it your family smiling? Does it, you're like, you know what? Think about it. If you see your family around you like smiling in their interaction, hey, no sound. You just see it. Appreciate that. Not a lot of families have that. Maybe it's a beautiful beach. I like the beach. You say, I like the lake. Yeah, me too. You say, well, I actually like a stream, a, a, a stream with lots of greenery or colored trees hanging on. Yeah, me too. Something about it, I think we just like anything with water. If that's in your future or if that's in your normal week and you just get used to just going by it, I almost feel for people who live near the beach, I wonder if they just get tired of looking over at the beach. There's probably people who drive Highway 1 over there on the West Coast and look at the Pacific like every day. Where are you headed? Oh, it's my commute. Do you ever just kind of still look over to your right? Nah, I did it first. Appreciate the beautiful things. Maybe it's a mountain range in the fall or in the spring. For some of you, it's the stars and the moon and the galaxy. For some of you, it may literally be a painting or architecture. You really you get something out of that. Others, it may be colors and shapes and textures. I can't explain it. I, one of the things I love, I love looking at different shades of green in a set of trees. As I said on my front porch, there's like three or four different shades. Some are dark and some are glossy, and, and I just love it. We need to take a sunrise, a sunset, clear, shiny days. A little bit of clouds, no clouds, fluffy clouds, high clouds. Beautiful things. And along with that, take time. Appreciate it and then take time to tell the Lord, God, thank you for my eyes to see the beautiful things. And then my last thought this morning is this, if you'll write this down. Faith by the recipient was not always a prerequisite for physical healing by Jesus. I said that earlier. You didn't always have to have faith for Jesus to heal you physically. But listen to me. Faith by the recipient is mandatory to receive salvation. Not everyone in the New Testament who was, who was healed physically had faith. But faith is mandatory to everyone who receives salvation from their sins spiritually I use these verses a lot. Listen to them. John chapter 1 says that Jesus came to his own, his own people, but they received him not. Watch what it says. Listen. But as many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, the children of God. Who are these? To them that believe on his name, believe on his person. John chapter 3. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Not whosoever, it's whosoever will believe. It is mandatory. For by grace are you saved, Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace, God gives the grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. Your faith must receive it. 
Acts chapter 16, verse number 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Listen to me. It is absolutely mandatory for you to get saved. You must believe the promises of God. You must believe the person of Jesus Christ. You, must, you have to believe his death counts for you. So I'm going to ask you a question. Answer honestly. Do you really believe? Faith is mandatory to go to heaven. Mandatory. You can't have it any other way. Do you honestly believe Jesus is able to forgive your sins? Can he? All of them. Do you believe he is willing to forgive? Able, willing. Listen, just as big as the other two. I'm asking all of you. I'm asking everybody in this room right now. Do you believe he has saved you from your sins? Do you believe he's forgiven you? I get it. Most people watching this right now, you say, I'm a Christian. I need you to take this moment in this text to evaluate, am I trusting Christ only? Because the Bible teaches if you add anything to that trust, then you're not receiving grace. If you have even a thought in your mind, a few weeks ago I used this idea. Listen, if you have any thought in the front of your mind or in the middle of your mind or even in the back of your mind when you come to Christ, uh, I'm trusting Christ, but I'm pretty good. I'm better than them. If you have that anywhere in the back of your mind, you are adding to grace. You're not having the proper faith. It has to be faith alone receiving his grace alone. Can you honestly say that? You say, Jeff, hold on. Where's this in the text? I don't see this being so important this morning. Would you look at verse 29 as we close? Verse 29 says, he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. Here's what I promise you. I promise. It's your last note. In a moment, I'm going to pray. When I finish praying, we'll be done for our service. Here's what I'll promise you. In eternity, when you take your last breath here and you head out into the next life, listen, in that moment, it will be to you. It will be done to you according to your faith. Christ knows. If you're trusting anything else, I know these two blind men had faith in Jesus. You say, how do you know that? Because they got their sight. If in eternity, listen, if I see you in heaven and you see me in heaven, then we will know we really did believe in Christ alone. But if I get to heaven and I don't see you, then I will know you didn't have real faith. If you get to heaven and you don't see me, you will know Jeff didn't really have faith. Jeff must have been thinking being a preacher was going to help him. It will be to you according to your faith. Don't let anything else blend with that. Take a moment and evaluate your life. Would you bow your head just for a moment? Bow your heads, close your eyes. Right there where you're at at home, everyone in here. Hey, maybe someone... You say, I think I'm still in spiritual blindness. Would you just beg God, Lord, give me vision. Give me understanding spiritually before it's too late. And then you keep watching and listening. And maybe you approach a good Christian friend or you call us and text us, email us at the church, say, I think I need someone to walk me through what the Bible says about my condition. And I'm praying that God will open my eyes spiritually. Beg God. If anyone's out there and you say, Jeff, I have a major need in my life right now. I really need the mercies of God. Here's what I find. God gives mercy to those people who ask him for it because they're desperately in need.
and when they come humbly and believing the promises of God. Before I pray, can we say, Lord, I need to appreciate the beautiful things you put around me. I take them for granted. I get so rushed. And then, Lord, thank you for eyes and ears to perceive the beautiful things. And then be sure that you're trusting only Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you. I hope that uh, we've been able to get this service out to folks. I know that we started late, but Lord, uh, present it to you. Thank you for those that have stuck with us. God, I pray that you would use something in today's passage to affect how we're going to live this week. Certainly inwardly, but maybe even how we live outwardly. Lord, I pray that we would use our physical eyes to appreciate beautiful things and to thank you for them. And then, Lord, I pray if anyone is is praying that prayer that, God, I, I think I'm still in spiritual blindness. Lord, would you please, in your mercy and in your grace, give them, awaken them, quicken their dead spirit. Give them spiritual vision, Lord. Give them faith. Let it start making sense. They have no hope without you doing that, God. I had no hope at age nine until you allowed me to perceive things. You opened my eyes. And then, Lord, let us all evaluate our life and be sure that we're trusting you and you only because your word is clear. It will be to us according to our faith. Thank you for Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Hope you guys have a great week. Enjoy Memorial Day and be sure to give the Lord thanks for our freedom and those who he used uh, to make it possible. Have a great week. Thank you.